Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. I must say, I just feel very special whenever I'm at Franciscan University. It's just been such a special place for me and my family. All six of my children went here. Uh, Father Mike Scanlon and I were co-hosts of The Choices We Face for many, many years. And when I was starting to speak about a crisis of truth in the church, he he heard that my first talks and he, he called me up. He said, Ralph, you're going to get some flack for this. I want to stand next to you. And he traveled all over the world with me. Sort of, he would introduce me and say, "Hey, look, I'm a Harvard Law graduate. I'm rector of a seminary and president of the university, and this guy's okay." So I, I had no credentials in those days, and I, I never expected to have any. And then those just unfolded. Uh, my wife is with me. She's visiting our, our five grandchildren who are here. I have a son-in-law who teaches at the university, uh, Scott Solon. Um, my daughter teaches at Catholic Central High School, and somebody's told me their daughter has her for French this year. So uh, just lots of ties, lots of things. I see Mark Nierbrus here, and uh, for many years we travel all over the world together with Father Mike Scanlon doing fire rallies, and uh, just so many, so many wonderful things have come out of this university and still are coming out of this university. I think Father Nathan really embodies the whole spirit of St. Francis and the university, and uh, and, and in the spirit of Father Mike Scanlon. So I'm just, I'm just excited about what, what the Lord continues to do here. <clears throat> so the title of my talk is Pope Francis, Mercy and Evangelization. And I'd like to just offer a few like opening remarks about where has all this emphasis on evangelization come from? All of a sudden, we find the Catholic Church talking about evangelization, new evangelization. I mean, there's hardly a parish or a diocese that, that isn't concerned to somehow make a response to this call. Well, where it really has come from originally is from Jesus. When Jesus said, preach the gospel to every creature, and those who believe and baptize will be saved, and those who don't believe and aren't baptized will be condemned. Like, the eternal salvation of the human race depends on preaching the gospel, or Matthew, the end of Matthew's gospel, uh, make disciples of all the nations and teach them everything I've taught you and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the solemn command of Jesus to send us, to send the church, to proclaim the good news of the forgiveness of sins and resurrection of the dead and freedom from the work of the devil and the beginnings of a, a new community here on earth that embodies heavenly values. So it comes from Jesus. And for many, many centuries, the Catholic Church has carried out a tremendous work of evangelization. But as the European countries got evangelized, more and more evangelization got focused on missionary work in far-off countries that full-time professionals did, mainly priests and nuns and some lay people. And so a lot of us, when we were growing up, thought of evangelization as something that happens in far-off countries by Jesuits and Franciscans and other people. And then Vatican II came along and really kind of brought out some major reordering of, of things. And, and when 
John the 23rd, St. John the 23rd. I still get kind of excited to say St. John the 23rd and Blessed Paul the 6th and St. John Paul II. Haven't we been blessed by, by holy popes and tremendous contribution they've made? Benedict, Francis. And when, when these popes talk about the purpose of Vatican II in a shortened form, they say the purpose of Vatican II is renewal for the sake of evangelization. And the, and the central renewal that the popes are talking about is a renewal in holiness, a, re, a renewal in relationship with God, out of which the face of Christ can shine forth more clearly to the world. Now, right after Vatican II, though, it's almost like the opposite happened. Missionary orders began to question whether they still had a reason to evangelize. Some of the documents of Vatican II took a really long time to get properly interpreted and integrated with, with the, the tradition of the church and with scripture. For example, in the Declaration on, on Non-Christian Religions, it talks about seeds of the word existing in the different world religions. And, and a lot of missionary theologians began to say, well, you know, if the grace of God is already at work in, in the non-Christian religions, and if the seeds of the word are there, and if, as Vatican II teaches, people can be saved even if they don't hear the gospel, if they respond to that mysterious grace that God is making available to everybody, hey, maybe it's not so important that we evangelize anymore. Maybe we should focus on human development. Along with that came a sort of a self-criticism about the colonial mentality. A lot of the, the nations where evangelization was taking place were were being colonized by the European powers, and so there was the rejection of colonization, there was the uh, new freedom and independent nations, and all those things were, were creating sort of a toxic brew for evangelization. Unfortunately, that still goes on to this day. I was just talking a little while ago to a missionary priest from Ireland, and you know, missionary priests from Ireland have gone to the whole world, and he told me that they hardly have any vocations anymore, and their general chapter just met, and they, they, they came up with a new vision statement, which is to promote human development, promote the rights of women, and work for the safeguarding of the environment. What about Jesus? <laughs> what about conversion? What about salvation? What about the reason for the church existing? All those other things are good, but as Pope Francis often says, we're not an NGO, we're not a non-governmental organization. I mean, the UN can do all those things and does all those things. What's the unique mission of the church? So that confusion is still here. It, it wasn't helped by very famous theologians making lecture tours around the world, saying Vatican II was a good start, but it didn't go far enough. And we need to kind of keep, keep seeing how much, what else can change, you know? And so for, for a good number of years, people's eyes got off what Vatican II was really actually teaching and got into kind of a, a mentality of, well, what else can change? It may be a little spirit of rebellion, a spirit of liberation. In fact, uh, that was the time that liberation theology began to become very powerful influence, not only in Latin America, but in, in, the, in the church as a whole. And so in 1975, Pope Paul VI published a document called Evangelii Nuntiandi, Evangelization in Our Day, where he tried to get our focus back on the central mission of the church. And he tried to deal with some of the confusion 
And he, he asked the question, what's happened to that missionary fervor that, that used to animate our, our, our mission? What happened to that enthusiasm? What happened in that conviction that people really need to know about Jesus? And he tried to deal with the issue of the seeds of the word being found in the non-Christian religions, but nevertheless, we still need to preach and so on and so forth. So he tried to do that. That document, by the way, is Pope Francis's favorite document. When he gave a retreat to the uh, bishops in Spain before he got elected pope, that and the exercises of St. Ignatius were the two main documents that he drew from. So it's still a very, very dynamic, very valuable document. In 1990, Pope John Paul II published his missionary encyclical called Mission of the Redeemer. And this is the highest level post-Vatican II document on evangelization. It has the authority of an encyclical. And it's a very extensive treatment trying to deal with all the issues that come up about why we shouldn't evangelize. It tries to deal with the pluralist theory of religions that there's many paths to God and that everything's sort of beyond the, the, the particular founders of world religions into a mysterious absolute or that the Spirit's working somehow independently of Jesus. And so he tried to deal with a lot of the theories that were undermining our confidence in the truth of our faith. Then in the year 2000, uh, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith published a document called Dominus Jesus, the Lord Jesus. And it tried to say that, hey, there's still confusion going on, and we want to cl clearly enunciate that salvation is only possible through Jesus and the church. There's an absolute uniqueness to Jesus. He is God-made man. He is the Word-made flesh. There's no salvation possible except through him, and the church, but then it said that, it, reaffirming the teaching of Vatican II, then it said, of course, it's possible for people who never hear the gospel to be saved by being upright of conscience and, you know, all, all the things that Vatican II says about that, which we might get to in a little bit. And then in the year 2011, when, when you know, after Pope Benedict got elected Pope, people were wondering, is this whole focus on evangelization going to continue? And not only did it continue under Pope Benedict, but he started the first new Vatican office in many decades, the uh, Pontifical Council for the Promotion of the New Evangelization. And then he chose as the theme for the 2012 Synod of, of Bishops in Rome, uh, New Evangelization. And then in 2013, Pope Francis published his apostolic exhortation, Evangelii, uh, Gaudium. And so I'm going to talk mainly about that, but before we do that, I want to point out a particular document. It's called The Doctrinal Note on Some Aspects of Evangelization, published in 2007. So this is 25, 35, 25, 32 years after Paul VI tried to get things back on track. This is 17 years after John Paul II tried to get things refocused and back on track. Uh, and this is what the doctrinal note says. It's, it's section three. It says, there is today a growing confusion which leads many to leave the missionary command of the Lord unheard and ineffective. Often it is maintained that any attempt to convince others on religious matters is a limitation of their freedom. From this perspective, it would only be legitimate to present one's own ideas 
and to invite people to act according to their consciences without aiming at their conversion to Christ and to the Catholic faith. It is enough, so they say, to help people become more human or more faithful to their own religion. It is enough to build communities which strive for justice, freedom, peace, and solidarity. So this is still with us as recently as 2007. It goes on to say, furthermore, some maintain that Christ should not be proclaimed to those who do not know him, nor should joining the church be promoted, since it would also be possible to be saved without explicit knowledge of Christ and without any formal incorporation in the church. Vatican II does teach that, but with very significant qualifications, and we'll, we'll get to that in, in a little while. But before we move on to the contribution of Pope Francis, let's get clear about what evangelization really is. There's a very broad understanding of evangelization that includes everything that the church does, uh, the, the chancery office, the, the bookkeepers, the janitors, uh, every office of the church, every institution of the church is contributing in some way to Christ being known. And so there's a very broad understanding of evangelization that applies to everything the church does. But when we stop at the broad understanding, it's easy to pat ourselves on the back and say, well, we're doing it. We're doing evangelization. And that's why we need to get more clear about the core purpose of evangelization. And one of my, my favorite definitions is from uh, John Paul II in his encyclical, Section 46. This is his definition. He says, the proclamation of the word of God has Christian conversion as its aim, a complete and sincere adherence to Christ and his gospel through faith. Conversion means accepting by a personal decision the saving sovereignty of Christ and becoming his disciple. This is a very challenging definition. The reason why I find it so challenging is because a lot of the conversation about new evangelization uh, in dioceses and parishes goes something like this. We've got to do something to get people coming back to Mass. We've got to do something to get people more engaged in our parish. And it certainly is a wonderful thing to get people coming back to Mass and more engaged in our parishes. But I hope this doesn't scandalize you. But you know, it's possible for somebody to come to Mass but not be converted. It's possible for somebody to be active in our parishes and not be converted, according to this definition. Sometimes people say, hey, I like to sing. I'll sing in the choir. And you can have people singing in the choir who don't believe in Jesus. You can have people come into church, but they're coming more with the mind of the world and the spirit of the age than the mind of Christ and the spirit of God. It's just, it's just the fact. So let's take a closer look at this definition. The proclamation of the word of God is Christian conversion as it's aimed. Don't be afraid of the C word. Yeah, we want people converted to Jesus. Yes. A complete and sincere adherence to Christ and his gospel through faith. That's strong. A complete and sincere adherence to Christ and his gospel through faith. That's a pretty strong definition, but that's what Jesus is really asking. You know, one of the founders of the Curcio movement, Bishop Juan Hervas, said one of the things that's most weakening the Catholic Church is what he called the minimalist corruption of the gospel, asking from people less than Jesus asks and offering to people less than Jesus offers. I mean, Jesus is, is the Lord. If you understand that Jesus is the Lord, the only sensible response is, is surrender, is falling at his feet, 
is saying, depart from me from a sinful man, and hearing the wonderful words of Jesus saying, from now on, you're going to be fishers of men. Uh, that, that was my own experience. When I was a senior at Notre Dame, I was a philosophy major. I was getting more and more confused. It was the time in the 60s, and uh, a friend insisted that I make a cursio. And, and on that cursio, I got the uncomfortable feeling that Jesus was alive. <laughs> and that he was there. And that he really had been raised from the dead. And that he really was the Lord. And that really, really perplexed me quite a bit. I really prided myself as a philosophy major on searching for the truth. But I really wasn't planning to find it so soon. <laughs> I was looking forward to many enjoyable years of searching for the truth on my own terms. But I knew that if Jesus really was who he said he was, I had just found the pearl of great price. I, I had just found the treasure buried in the field, and I needed to sell everything I had so I could have it. And that meant really surrendering to Jesus and writing a blank check. And that's really the only sensible response that anybody could make to Jesus. I mean, we don't fit Jesus into our lives. He's not just another book on the shelf with our books. He's not just another teacher. He's not just another source of, well, this is Jesus' opinion. He's the Lord. And I think that's just so key for evangelization and for renewal of the church to just understand what it means that Jesus is Lord. Now, this definition is interesting. It says a complete and sincere adherence to Christ and his gospel through faith. A lot of people like Jesus, right? Jesus is popular. Sometimes Jesus appears on the cover of Time magazine. You know, that's really making it, isn't it? You know? <laughs> but a lot of people don't like what Jesus actually says. One time I was giving a talk just sharing something that Jesus says, and a woman came up to me afterwards and said, my Jesus would never say that. But this is a little scary. You know, there are a lot of people making little wooden statues, you know, worshiping them. But there are a lot of people creating a Jesus in their own image. There's a lot of people making up their own religion. You know, cafeteria Catholicism isn't oftentimes an innocent sport, but it's a form of rebellion. It's a form of rejection of the authority of Christ. The last part of the definition, conversion means accepting by a personal decision the saving sovereignty of Christ and becoming his disciple. When I first heard this personal decision, I said, gee, John Paul II sounds like Billy Graham. You know, what's, what's going on here? But what we're seeing in the modern pontificates is an increasing emphasis on the importance of a personal relationship with Christ. You know, uh, John Paul II here talking about making a personal decision. Pope Benedict often talks about friendship with Christ. Pope Francis all the time talks about encounter with Christ, the personal encounter with Jesus, and the personal decision to follow him. And we might ask, why is this language that in some ways doesn't sound Catholic becoming more common in the papal magisterium? I think it's because of the radical cultural change that we're going through. 1,700 years of Christian culture is collapsing around us, and it's being replaced by an aggressive international pagan culture that's increasingly hostile to Christ and the church, and we're seeing that in our own country. We're, we're, we're seeing that hostility to claims of truth. We're seeing that hostility towards conscience rights. 
We're seeing that hostility towards what people forever before us thought was marriage and family. We're, we're, we're seeing a rejection of objective truth and the revelation of God. And I think the only way that Catholics are going to be able to be Catholic in the future is if they make that personal decision to be loyal to Jesus Christ, to make that personal decision to follow Jesus and be his disciple, and to make a complete and sincere adherence to Christ and his gospel. And so this call to evangelization and this language of personal relationship is absolutely essential today because it's not enough any longer to be a Hispanic Catholic or an Irish Catholic or a German Catholic or an Italian Catholic or a Slovakian Catholic or a Polish Catholic or any kind of Catholic just by heritage or ethnic group. We really need to encounter the Lord and personally surrender our lives to him and form ourselves by his teaching in order to stand against the, the pagan culture that's engulfing us. At the Synod of 2012, Cardinal Wuerl was the general relator, and he asked me to help him with formulating some of the propositions. And two things he said at the beginning of the Synod really, really struck me. He said there's a tsunami of secularism engulfing the world, and the number one priority for us as a church is to regain our confidence in the truth of our faith. That's really true. Okay, where does Francis fit into all this? He's absolutely four square in the line of the command of Jesus to preach the gospel to all nations, in the emphasis on renewal and evangelization from Vatican II, on the incredible emphasis on the need for a new evangelization. Incidentally, I might just say what's, what's new about the new evangelization. The, the first thing that's new about it is who it's directed to. It's no longer just directed to people in far-off countries where the church isn't established. John Paul II says it's directed to baptized Catholics who aren't living as disciples of Christ, who may be even far from the church. So the mission field is now all around us. The mission field is often in our own families, in our own parishes, in our own neighborhoods, in our own work environments. And that's really important. The second thing that's new about the new evangelization, and this is, this is really a powerful thing that's hardly begun to be realized, is that the main people who do the new evangelization are not priests or nuns, but baptized lay people. And one way of understanding what Vatican II did was to rediscover the meaning of baptism. That baptism isn't just a ritual or a membership requirement or something that grandparents make, make their kids do for their babies. But it's a sacrament that brings us into living relationship with God. You know, like the famous God that we read about, you know, God, you know, the real God, you know. And that, that baptizes us into the love that Jesus has for his Father and the love that he receives from the Father. And that baptizes us into the love that Jesus has for human beings. It baptizes us into his relationship with the Father and his love for the human race. And that's the energy, that's the force, that's the identity of the spirit that's at work in us. So the second thing that's new about the new evangelization is who does it? Baptize lay people. And what scripture says about the relationship between leadership in the church and the baptized in Ephesians chapter 4 is really important. It says the risen Christ gave leadership gifts to the church, apostles and prophets and pastors and evangelists and teachers, 
not to do the whole work of the church, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So one of the main purposes of leadership in the church is to awaken the baptized to who they are in Christ so they can embrace their call to holiness and embrace their call to mission. Now, I, I do a, a lot of clergy convocations and deacons retreats and study days, and when I talk about new evangelization to priests, they get nervous. They say, I don't have time to add anything else to my schedule, but they get really excited when they hear that lay people are supposed to do it. <laughs> That's true. You know, a, a priest can't be at every family reunion, can't be in every office, can't be in every factory, can't be in every field, but lay people are there and they need to be there as missionaries. But when a priest starts telling lay people that they're supposed to evangelize, lay people say, why are you trying to foist off on us your job? So there's like a, a mutual clericalism, you know, lay people like it, that priests do everything, you know? And so it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to get lay people to really embrace their call. Okay, how does Pope Francis fit into all of this? He's very much in the line of all the documents and teaching that have gone before him. I think something like a magisterial tradition on evangelization has developed, just like the social teaching of the church developed. It began at a certain point with Leo XIII, and it has unfolded ever since. I think we're seeing actually the development of a magisterial tradition on evangelization in all these documents that I've mentioned, and Pope Francis is very much in line with it. I would say it's almost like he kind of kicks it up a notch. Uh, I, my wife used to watch this uh, cooking show, Emerald, you know, the, the guy from Louisiana, and he'd be cooking something, and he'd say, you know, let's kick it up a notch, bow, pam, you know, he'd be kind of throwing stuff in and be flaring up, you know. It's almost like Pope Francis who says, yeah, all these things that these guys have said is really good, but let's kick it up a notch. And there's like a, a quality of passion and exhortation and practical advice that, that really has an urgency to it that, that is adds his own contribution. So what are some of the things that are characteristic of Pope Francis's teaching on evangelization? And I'm drawing mainly here on an Evangelii Gaudium, a very powerful, a very challenging document, a very important document, a very unique document. There's just lots of amazing stuff in there that's really, it's almost like it's grabbing us by the throat and saying, wake up and evangelize. It's, it's just like, so, a very strong affirmation of the need to evangelize, a very strong exhortation, but with his own colorful language. He quotes himself talking about we need to have the smell of the sheep. But then the rest of that sentence is interesting. You never hear about so that the sheep will listen to our voice. Or somebody says we need to have the smell of the sheep, but our people need to smell from us the aroma of Christ. So it isn't just kind of like, hanging out with folks. It's hanging out with folks with the aroma of Christ arising from us so that they can want to hear the voice of the shepherd. This document, Evangelii Gaudium, deals less with theological issues than previous documents. He says he affirms everything that all his predecessors have said, but his main interest here is in dealing with some of the theological issues. He, uh, he says things like, Evangelists shouldn't look like they've just come from a funeral. He says evangelists shouldn't be sour pusses. If you want to look that up, sections 10 and 85. Smell the sheep is section 24. 
there's a very strong affirmation of lay mission. And he's coined a phrase that's really gained quite a credence called, we're called to be missionary disciples. Not just disciples following Jesus, but disciples on a mission. Missionary disciples. He uh, has a strong emphasis on the Holy Spirit. But so did John Paul II, and so did Paul VI in their documents. So he's very much continuing in that line. But with a strong emphasis on practicality, I'm going to uh, just read a, a few of the things that Pope Francis says uh, that's very characteristic of his teaching. Section 120 from Evangelii Gaudium. He says, the new evangelization calls for personal involvement on the part of each of the baptized. Every Christian is challenged, here and now, to be actively engaged in evangelization. Indeed, anyone who has truly experienced God's saving love does not need much time or lengthy training to go out and proclaim that love. So what are we waiting for? It's just like he's kind of pushing us out of our comfort zone. And this is important because a lot of Catholics feel like, well, I don't know enough to talk about my faith to anybody. And that's okay. If people ask you a question, just say, I don't know. And then you go back and say they ask you about purgatory. You say, gee, purgatory begins with a P. Let me go look it up in the catechism under P, you know. And you find this beautiful description of purgatory. You go back to your friend and you say, isn't this beautiful? I didn't understand this myself. Would you like to borrow my catechism for a couple of years? <laughs> so Pope Francis is very much saying, if you know the Lord's love, you know enough to tell somebody about him. And then he says, today, that was in section 120, this is 127. Today, as the church seeks to experience a profound missionary renewal, there's a kind of preaching which falls to each of us as a daily responsibility. It has to do with bringing the gospel to the people we meet whether they be our neighbors or complete strangers. This is the informal preaching which takes place in the middle of a conversation. When visiting a home, being a disciple means being constantly ready to bring the love of Jesus to others. And this can happen unexpectedly in any place, on the street, in the city square, during work, on a journey. Then in section 128, he adds something that nobody said before, that I'm aware of. He said, if it seems prudent, and if the circumstances are right, you could end the conversation with a brief prayer related to the concerns which the person may have expressed. So bring Jesus into the conversation. People may have just told you a terrible problem you don't know the answer to, but you say, hey, you know what? Let's bring this to Jesus. Let's pray. Let's, let's lift this up to the Lord. So he's, he's really trying to get people to connect with the Lord, to, to open conversations to the Lord, to, to lead people to the Lord. He also has a very uh, strong emphasis on reaching out to what he calls the peripheries. And this is a, you know, all the other documents talk about the importance of the poor, the importance of reaching out to those most in need. But Francis has really kicked it up a notch. He said, we really need to reach out to the peripheries. And he makes a point of saying, we've got to get out of our rectories, out of our sacristies, out of the security of our, our homes and reach out and, and go out. It's, it's a very strong exhortation. He even has a word for theologians. He says, the church and theology exist to evangelize. We don't want any desk-bound theology. Section 133, no desk-bound theology. He also talks about the importance of the works of mercy. Uh, and 
strongly, strongly emphasizes on both the spiritual and the corporal works of mercy, but inspired by Pope Francis, uh, my wife and myself have joined our local St. Vincent de Paul Society, and that's been a really good way of getting into hands-on smell of the sheep, and it's been really a, a, a wonderful thing, and I'm grateful to Pope Francis for that impetus. We have periodically done various things over the years, but this regular service with the poor and to the poor is, has been really, really good. And he, of course, reaffirms the social dimension of the Gospels, as the other papal documents have done as well. But I would say that more than I ever expected, Evangelii Gaudium is a spirituality document. It, it, it's the kind of thing, you read it, you say, wow, wow, he's really hitting hard. He's really talking about motivation. He's really talking about tendency to comfort. He's really talking about reliance on money. He's really talking about fear. He's really talking about all kinds of things in our lives. And it's the kind of thing that you could take a page or two in, in certain sections and just bring it before the Lord in prayer. It's, it's really very much like a spirituality document. He talks about priests who say they're going to depend on the Holy Spirit for their preaching, but don't prepare. And he says they're just being lazy. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, he's just kind of really all these kind of zingers that, that are really good examination of consciences. Uh, okay. But perhaps the thing he's most noted for is his emphasis on mercy. This is not just in this encyclical, but this is a whole theme of his pontificate. Uh, John Paul II has been called the Mercy Pope because of his strong emphasis on mercy. He wrote an encyclical on mercy called Dives and Misericordia, God is Rich in Mercy. Uh, he, he rescued St. Faustina and, and brought her to the attention of the entire church and canonized her and put a new liturgical feast in, in the year, the, the Sunday after Easter, the Feast of Divine Mercy. He died on the vigil of Divine Mercy. So a very strong identification with the mercy of God and with, with how that mercy has come to us in the modern revelations of St. Faustina and the Divine Mercy devotion. I, I hardly can go to a church anymore where I don't find an image of the Divine Mercy. And it's just been a very powerful influence. And Pope Francis has kind of even kicked it up a notch. He's just really, he almost can't give a talk without talking about mercy. And it's certainly very, very key. At the same time, it could very easily be misunderstood. Have you heard people say things like this? God is so merciful, he'll never let anybody be lost. Have you heard people say things like, you know, mercy triumphs over justice? Yes, and there's a truth to all those things, but there's also a confusion. And so I'd like to talk about some of the things that uh, Pope Francis says that are very good as examination of conscience, but also can cause confusion if you don't notice other things that he says. And Pope Francis is a very unique methodology, doesn't he? He really brings home a point so strongly that it's easy to think that that's the whole truth about a subject, and yet sometimes you can get an imbalanced understanding because of that. So you need to kind of put things together more in a way that we didn't have to do with, with Benedict or John Paul II. For example, 
probably one of the things that has most kind of identified Pope Francis to the world was that famous comment, who am I to judge? You know, the, the National Gay Magazine made him man of the year because of that comment. Now, what did he mean by that? It took him a long while, but he finally explained he was talking about a particular individual who perhaps had homosexual activity in his background, but now was repenting and trying to live a good life. And who am I to judge the sincerity of this person? I think he appointed him to a Vatican position, which is another question about whether that's wise or not. But he wasn't making a global statement. Obviously, we're called to judge all kinds of things. The whole purpose of divine revelation is so we can judge the difference between right and wrong. So we can judge the difference between true and false. So we can discern what spirit is at work in a situation. We're obviously called to judge, and Pope Francis himself judges all the time. So, but people have somehow gotten an impression that, well, who am I to judge? You know, I don't know whether this is right or wrong anymore. I don't know whether this is true or false, but who am I to judge? It falls into kind of the spirit of relativism and universalism that's really permeating even sometimes at places in the church. Also, Pope Francis has been very strong in repeated denunciations of legalism, Pharisaism, uh, people who are into canon law and doctrine in a way that you could get the impression that canon law is bad or doctrine's bad. And of course, it isn't. It's essential. It's important. And Pope Francis himself knows that, but sometimes he condemns the excesses in such a way that people can get a different impression. Okay, there's actually quite a lot of things in Pope Francis's teaching that would clear up any confusion in this area of mercy, and they need to be more widely known. And quite honestly, I wish he'd emphasize some of these things in his airplane conversations. He says them in his documents, but I wish he would sometimes add some of these things so that people wouldn't kind of fall into a presumption on mercy. The scripture passage with which both Pope Francis and John Paul II use in the very first paragraph of their documents, uh, Pope John Paul II, Divism is recorded, Pope Francis in Evangelii Gaudium, is a, uh, 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 his, no, his papal bull on the, the Jubilee year. Uh, I have it written down here. So yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, so I'll get to it, yeah. So is Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Now, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 is a short phrase that says, but God is rich in mercy. It's a transition phase, though. It's, 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 it's moving to a new section of the epistle. The first section of the epistle talks about what life is like apart from Christ. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the whole thing. You are dead because of your sins and offenses as you gave your loyalty to the present age and to the prince of the air, that spirit who is even now at work among the rebellious. All of us were once of their company. We lived at the level of the flesh, following every women fancy. And here's the shocking sentence to modern sensibilities. And so by nature, deserve God's wrath like the rest. The default situation of the human race is lost. That's, that's what God reveals to us. 
apart from Christ, we're lost. We, we live at the level of the flesh. We give our loyalty to the present age. We're subject to the lies of the devil. Uh, we're, we're, we're being invited to rebellion. We're following every woman's fancy. We're a victim of our culture and the brainwashing that's going on in our culture. So the default situation of the human race is lost. That's the bad news. Somebody once said, if you don't know the bad news, when somebody tells you the good news, it's going to seem like no news. And all we've been hearing for many, many years is the good news. And so people say, oh yeah, God's rich in mercy, great. I know he loves me, great. You drink and be married because tomorrow we're all going to heaven. The deepest meaning of mercy is revealed in this text. It's God's love coming to people who are lost, people who need forgiveness of sins, people who need rescue from the lives of evil, people who need to be snatched out of a culture that's misshaping their identities, people who need resurrection from the dead, people who need the death sentence that came into the world through our first parents, to be lifted. And that's something that no human being can do. But God is rich in mercy. And because of his great love for us, he brought us to life with Christ when we were dead in sin. By this grace, you were saved. Both with and in Christ Jesus, he raised us up and gave us a place in the heavens that in the ages to come, he might display the great wealth of his favor. And then Paul says something he only says several times in all of his epistles. He says, I repeat. He really wants us to get this. I repeat. It is owing to his grace that salvation is yours through faith. This is not your own doing. It is purely God's gift. So what's mercy? It's the gratuitous gift of God to forgive us our sins and rescue us from the devil and give us eternal life. By nature, we deserve God's wrath, but God is giving us the free gift of life in Christ Jesus. By nature, we deserve hell, we're being offered the gift of heaven. Neither is it a reward for anything you have accomplished, so let no one pride himself on it. This is, this is really key. The first rebellion of our first parents had an aspect of pride to it. Remember what the devil said, you know, you'll be like God's? Oh, cool, we could create ourselves. That same lie is being told to our culture today. The same lie is being enforced by totalitarian means. You can be like gods. You can be liberated from objective reality. You can be liberated from the creator. You can declare your independence. A terrible, terrible, wicked lie that leads to death. The devil said you won't die, and they died. But he's still saying the same thing to people. As people are still dying. People are still dying spiritual deaths and physical deaths because of the lies of the devil. So here's the key text that both Pope Francis and John Paul II use in their important documents on mercy. God is rich in mercy. But that's the good news that follows the bad news that's not intelligible unless we understand it all. Sometimes Pope Francis so strongly emphasizes mercy and being non-judgmental, people don't notice that he's very clear in harmony with his predecessors in the Catechism of the Catholic Church of Scripture that a response to mercy 
by way of conversion is necessary for it to be effective. There has to be a yes to mercy. There has to be a response to mercy. It doesn't automatically take effect. It's offered to everybody, but there has to be a receptivity to mercy. There has to be a recognition that we need mercy, and there has to be understanding that we never could accomplish this on our own. It's coming purely as a gift, a gratuitous gift of God's love. Pope Francis makes this clear in many places in his writing. I just wish he would say it in his plain interviews. The very first paragraph of Evangelii Gaudium, this is what he says, the joy of the gospel fills the hearts and lives of all who encounter Jesus. Those who accept his offer of salvation are set free from sin, sorrow, inner emptiness, and loneliness. And in section three, I invite all Christians everywhere at this very moment to a renewed personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Now is the time to say to Jesus, Lord, I have let myself be deceived in a thousand ways. I have shunned your love, yet here I am once more to renew my covenant with you. I need you. Save me once again, Lord. Take me once more into your redeeming embrace. How good it feels to come back to him whenever we are lost. Let me say this once more. God never tires of forgiving us. We are the ones who tire of seeking his mercy. There has to be a yes to mercy. That very simple summary of the gospel, John 3.16, the guy used to run around the stadium holding up the sign, John 3.16, I think they arrested him or something. I hope somebody could free him. What does it say? God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. It's, it's all about love. It's all about love. God so loves the world. The fact that we're alive is because he loves us. The fact that the universe is still working, he loves us. The fact that the sun rose today is he loves us. The fact that we have air to breathe, he loves us. The fact that we have our daily bread, he loves us. It's all about love. But we're in a terrible situation. We, we, we were born into a race in rebellion. We were born into original sin. We've added our personal sin. We've been affected by the, the lies of the devil and the, and the corruption of our culture and our own disordered desires. We all have disordered desires. And the way that God has come to heal our souls and to rescue us from those disordered desires and to rescue us from the death that is our death sentence is Jesus. The way that the love has been given is in Jesus. Now, people sometimes say, well, I don't think that's fair. I think that's very narrow. You know, I, I think the love's also given in Mohammed and Buddha. Hey, the love's given in Jesus. That's what the Father decided to do. And if you understood what was going on there, what could be more perfect? What could be more amazing? What could be more beautiful? What could be more generous? What could be more sacrificial? That God so loved the world, he gave his only son. But then there has to be a response to that love, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, there has to be a response of belief, of faith. When you hear the gospel, when the Holy Spirit enlightens your mind or heart, there has to be that yes. There has to be that faith. Whoever believes in him will not perish. So something's really at stake. Will not perish, but have eternal life. So what's the choice before the human race? It's perish or eternal life. 
It's condemnation or forgiveness. It's hell or heaven. There's a choice. Christianity isn't an optional enrichment exercise for those who like spiritual things. It's not like learning Italian or learning how to cook. It's not an option. This is where rescue is. This is where mercy is. This is where salvation is. This is where resurrection life is. Where's resurrection life? It's in Jesus. Where's the love of the Father? It's in Jesus. How do we rise from the dead? We, we grab to, onto Jesus. And we, we rise with him. That, that's where it is. I mean, that's, that's the truth. It's objective reality. The choice is perishing or eternal life. And that's why evangelization is so important. That's why we not fall into this presumption, oh, God's so merciful, everybody be saved. That's not what God says. That's not what the scripture says. It's not what Jesus says. It's not what the tradition says. It's not what Pope Francis says. The very first time he led the uh, Stations of the Cross at the Colosseum after being elected Pope, he said this. He says, in judging us, God loves us. If I embrace his love, then I am saved. If I refuse it, then I am condemned. In the official document, it's called a papal bull. That, that's no bull. They still have papal bulls. <laughs> An official document proclaiming the Jubilee Year of Mercy that we're coming to the conclusion of, Misericordiae Vultus, I'll call it MV from now on. He makes clear over and over again that accepting mercy involves faith and repentance and a changed way of life. For example, in section three, he talks about the holy doors. He says these doors are to lead those on pilgrimage, quote, to discover a path to conversion. It's not just a superstitious ritual. It's, it's indicating a desire to change our life, to enter more deeply into the life of Christ in the church. He talks about the pilgrimage, that was in section 3, this is section 14, as an impetus to conversion. Pope Francis is not afraid of the C word. I wish he would evangelize a little bit more on the plains. <laughs> i gotta, I got to confess something here. Pope Benedict said the most amazing things. Uh, filled with passion and, and fire, but he said it like this. Dear brothers and sisters, today I want to tell you about the fire of the Holy Spirit. And people didn't get the fire, you know? So honestly, this is the truth. During the conclave to elect a successor, I was praying that the Lord would give us a pope who could speak without notes with fire. I'm kind of wondering whether I should have prayed that or not. <laughs> I, I love that part of it, but you can see the strengths and weaknesses of both methodologies in teaching. During the Jubilee year in section 18 of the Papal Bull, he asked pastors during the Jubilee year, quote, to be diligent in calling back the faithful to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace. He makes a special appeal to conversion to those in grave sin, particularly mentioning those involved in criminal activity or in corruption. He reminds them and us, quote, that everyone sooner or later will be subject to God's judgment from which no one can escape, section 19. Section 21, he discusses the relationship between mercy and justice. He says, this does not mean that justice should be devalued or rendered superfluous. On the contrary, anyone who makes a mistake must pay the price. However, this is just the beginning of conversion, not its end. And again, he says, mercy is not opposed to justice, but rather expresses God's way of reaching out to the sinner, offering him a new chance to look at himself, convert, and believe. John Paul II makes the same point. 
And Pope Francis, when he mentions the significance of the Jubilee year coinciding with the 50th anniversary of Vatican II, he says, God's mercy, quote, reaches the pardoned sinner and frees him from every residue left by the consequences of sin, enabling him to act with charity, to grow in love rather than to fall back into sin. Now, what's the basis of Francis's teaching that there needs to be a response to mercy and a turning away from sin and conversion? It's the teaching of Jesus. Some of the most powerful passages that show forth the mercy of Jesus also show forth the necessity of responding to that mercy with faith and repentance. For example, the uh, prodigal son, the compassionate father, take your choice what to call it, it's both. What happened? The son left the father's house and squandered his inheritance on loose living. And finally, he hit bottom. He wished that somebody would give him the food being fed to pigs. And for Jews, that's really low. That's really, really low. But then he came to his senses, and this is what he said. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And he arose and came to his father. He repented. He acknowledged his sin. He, he acknowledged he made a wrong turn in his life. And he was going to retrace his steps and go back to his father's house. He repented, and there was a conversion, and he asked for forgiveness. The woman caught in adultery. You know the story? Nobody was left to throw stones at her. Jesus said, woman, is there anybody here to condemn you? She says, Lord, there's nobody to condemn me. John 8, verse 11. And then Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, but go and do not sin again. Jesus expected that his, his offer of mercy, his expression of compassion, would lead to repentance and conversion and a turning away from sin. Or that poor guy who 38 years never made it down to the pool when the angel was stirring the water. 38 years, Jesus had mercy on him and had compassion for him and healed him. Then scripture says, John chapter 5, verse 14, that Jesus sought him out to tell him something special. Jesus said, look, you are well, but sin no more that nothing worse happened to you. Jesus clearly expected repentance and conversion when mercy was offered to whoever he offered mercy to. Same, same with the message of St. Faustina. I'm going to end with this. Yeah, five more minutes. Um, tremendous invitation from Jesus through St. Faustina, that the greatest of sinners is most entitled to the mercy of God, that nobody, no matter what sin or, or how many sins or whatever, should shy back from the mercy of the Lord. A tremendous invitation to come to the Lord for mercy and forgiveness. But Jesus also makes very clear that he expects a response to mercy. Section 1396 of her diary, Jesus says, if sinners knew of my mercy, they would not perish in such great numbers. Or section 1160 of her diary, I am prolonging the time of mercy for the sake of sinners, but woe to them if they do not recognize this time of my visitation. It makes you think of Jesus weeping over his own people because they were missing the hour of the visitation, the judgment that was going to come on them, the destruction of Jerusalem, a, a foreshadowing of the final judgment. And then Mary speaking to St. Faustina in section 635. 
you have to speak to the world about his great mercy and prepare the world for the second coming of him who will come not as a merciful savior, but as a just judge. How terrible is that day? Already set is the day of justice, the day of divine wrath. The angels tremble before it. Speak to souls about this great mercy while it is still the time for granting mercy. If you keep silent now, you will be answerable for a great number of souls on that terrible day. I'm going to read that again. If you keep silent now, you will be answerable for a great number of souls on that terrible day. There's so much pressure in our culture not to tell the truth. There's so much pressure in our culture to go along with people who are celebrating their immorality. There's so much pressure to cowardly be silent, even in our own families. Now, it's not easy. It's not easy when a son or daughter comes home with their live-in lover of whatever sex, and, and we say, hey, look, I love you, but uh, not in my house. And they say, well, I'm never coming home for Thanksgiving again. we got to be willing to take the pain. Jesus said this pain would happen. He said people in your own house will, will be divided. There will be mother-in-laws against daughters-in-laws and mothers against daughters and fathers against sons and sons against fathers. Yes, it's division. Jesus causes division. He brings peace on the basis of surrender to him. But there's a division he brings, too. That was prophesied over him from the very beginning. Remember when Simeon took baby Jesus in, in his arms and he said, this child will be the cause for the rise and the fall of many in Israel who reveal the secrets of hearts. When Jesus comes close, it's a crisis, just like it was for me when I was a senior at that weekend retreat. It's a crisis. Who do you say he is? What is your response going to be to him? And that's going to determine your eternal salvation. We have to say to people, it's because I love you that I can't agree with you that the way you're living is going to lead to your happiness on this earth and it's endangering your eternal salvation. I'll always love you and you're always welcome here, but I can't approve or condone what you're doing because it's not going to make you happy and it's endangering your eternal salvation. And you have to pray and you have to fast. We really need prayer and fasting today because it's a spiritual war that's going on and some demons are only cast out by prayer and fasting. And there's demons that are roaring like a lion seeking to devour souls. And we, we're in a spiritual battle and we need spiritual weapons. So anyway, um, I've got about five more pages. I never got to Vatican II. I never got to some other things. But, you know, you can only take in so much at one time. And all I want to say is that uh, Christianity is not a game. Evangelization is really important. If we love people, we're going to really care not just for them getting good jobs or getting healed of their illnesses. We're going to be caring about their eternal salvation. We're going to care that they die in friendship with Jesus and not die unrepentant in their sins. Amen. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.